Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montesi with James Begley. Today we talk to Professor David David, the world's leading craniofacial expert who has spent three decades restoring dignity for thousands of patients from all corners of the globe. Professor David performs everyday miracles for people who would otherwise be facing conditions that are limiting, debilitating and often life-threatening, such as distortion of the face and skull, cleft lip and palate deformities, facial growth anomalies, as well as tumours and other facial issues that require reconstructive surgery. The acclaimed humanitarian has been awarded a Companion of the Order of Australia, the Anzac Peace Award and South Australian of the Decade. Professor David describes himself as an average student who was talked into pursuing a medical career, but says his turning point came while training under inspirational doctors in Paris. He returned to Adelaide to establish the Australian Craniofacial Unit in 1975, and it remains the world's top medical centre in its field, pioneering a specialised multidisciplinary approach to care in a process that involves many surgeries over many years for most patients. Professor David talks about the complexity of his work, his amazing patients, handling pressure, overcoming bureaucracy, and much more. Enjoy our chat. Professor David, welcome to Rooster Radio. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Um, I was wondering if you could explain to some non-medical people the the key components that make up the face and the skull and, and what's important. Well, you know, everything that's truly human is on or about um, uh, really 10 square centimetres, isn't it, really? Uh, Your brain's there. Uh, Your eyes are connected to your brain. Uh, Your teeth help you to eat. Uh, Your um, palate and your tongue help you to speak. Your ears help you to hear. Uh, And the whole persona that you project to the community is through your face, your eye contact, who you are, um, what you say, etc. So everything that's truly human is there in about that square foot. So, so, you know, you can go into the anatomical details of this, but that's really the guts of it. Um, Is there anything after all these years of of learning and, and dealing with the face and skull, is there anything that's still magical about the connection of all these hard and soft tissues and the brain and, and the eyes? Well, I think the development is wonderful. Uh, it's something that I think a lot of medical people don't grasp and certainly a lot of lay people don't, uh, that you take this little baby that's born uh, and uh, even if it's premature, a little weeny person, and and if you watch carefully, as I did with, uh, uh, with certainly the first of my own children, uh, you sit there and you can almost see them grow. Uh, the the brain grows so rapidly, and when you think about it, that baby is sort of nothing the first day they're born, and then at one year, this little person can engage you. They can look at you. They listen to you. Uh, they can they they're whole. They're a part of a family. Uh, and if you then break that down to 365 days or something, what happens in every day? So the brain growth curve the way in which that rapid expansion of the brain formulates everything else uh, that almost is going to go on for life, formulates also the shape, the shape of the skull, and then the shape of the base of skull, the the bottom part, just the bit behind your eyes. That bit is like the... um, 
It's like the chassis of a motor car. And if it isn't the right length and the right width, and if it's twisted a bit, then everything above it's going to be twisted and everything below it's going to be twisted. And then if you think about it in another way, you think about the building blocks. You know, a, a builder, a, you know, a person, you're going to build your house. So you go to an architect and the architect says, right, I'll go to this builder, you see, and uh, and um, I know he's a good guy and uh, he's going to get the best bricks for you. I'll go and help him sort them out so he doesn't give you any bodgy ones, you see. We'll, we'll go and get some. And uh, and then we'll, we'll deliver them to the site and and some of them are going to make the, the back bit of your house, but the, f- the face bit, I want the really best bricks to be there because they're going to look good. Mm. So, um, uh, so, but on the way down there, uh, some get lost off the truck or uh, after he left and ordered them, someone stole a few from the, uh, from the, ba- from the back of the yard. Uh, and finally, when they get there, uh, you have to build the house with something that's not so good uh, and not so many. Mm. Now, that often happens in the, this rapid development phase, even before the baby's born, but it's, you see it. And so bits of the stuff that's been made are either deficient uh, uh, or uh, there's not enough of it. It's, not, it's, it's deficient quality uh, and deficient quantity. So therefore you get some sort of asymmetrical faces and, and deformed faces, etc. Cleft lip and palate being, being the simplest of them all, you see. So, so what, goes, what is always exciting is knowing and understanding, teaching, putting into practical application uh, all of these amazing uh, natural uh, phenomena that go on with the growth of a, of a child. Uh, and then into this comes, uh, comes the extraordinary social development of this little creature. So, uh, so where does that leave us with all of this business? Where does that leave us with, uh, with what I do and what my team does? It's not just me. It's this, this team of people who are in our wonderful craniofacial unit here, very well developed and, uh, and very sophisticated. And these are the things that sorts of teams that we hope will be all around the world to, to, to treat people in this way. What that leaves us with is, is that we have to be harmonious with growth. Uh, if you just, uh, anyone who has a baby or have a child, uh, and someone says, oh, but look, the nose isn't quite right or whatever. So, well, hang on, the nose isn't as big as yours yet. Yeah. Look at what's going to happen. This nose has got to be as big as your nose, or this jawbone's got to be as big as your jawbone. There are times that are appropriate to, to, to do this. You're not going to start, start uh, messing around with the garden before, the, uh, before the, uh, the shoots have started to grow and uh, et cetera. So, uh, so one of the essential components of all this is harmony with growth. Now, there, now there are some theories about all this. You know, how, how do you do this? And, you know, harmony is quite a, it, that, that's quite an Eastern concept, isn't it? Yeah. You see, it's a, it's, it's a harmonious, you know, um, uh, uh, symmetrical harmony. So there are certain things you can do and must do when all of this grow, growing is going on, the rapid growing. And there's a theory about this. It's a man called Moss, M-O-S-S, and he came up with a very fundamental theory about it all. And, um, uh, and that, that is that, uh, that it is the function uh, or the, the growing 
uh, soft tissue, the growing brain, for example, that forms your head. There are some unfortunate children who are born and they don't have some brain, and so that part of the head is missing or is, is, it won't grow. And it happens also with muscles in the face. If there isn't a muscle or deficient muscles on one side of the face, then the bone underneath won't grow. And you can you can see other examples around the body of that. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, that sort of sort of thing. So if we if we took it uh, sort of one step back and and um, and looked at, I guess your the catalyst for you to enter this world, um, was there a moment in your in your childhood in your upbringing where there was a conscious um, decision that this is a path for me? Uh, well, you know, the, n- none of these things are, um, are spontaneous uh, flashes of light from heaven. Uh, <laughs> they are in the movies. <laughs> well, they are, yeah. But what happens is that uh, basically it's your family context, isn't it? Isn't it? And, um, you know, my, I had a very powerful grandfather who wanted, uh, wanted at least somebody in the family to be a doctor, whether he wanted to or not, you see. So, uh, that, so you? that was me, you see. So, uh, so you know, you think that, uh, that this is all I want to um, What are you going to be? young man, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from my grandfather. Mm. It took me another 20 years to understand that it wasn't my idea, it was actually (laughs) his. Uh, And I had no idea what this meant, except that there was a certain status to it. Um, So anyway, uh, I entered onto this pathway uh, uh, with uh, not very good um, qualifications. I wasn't all that bright and uh, and, uh, I... I uh, I find that hard uh, to believe. Well, it's true. (laughs) Uh, And and so... um, uh, more interested in uh, in football and cricket and other such things. I do notice a Sturt football club. You do, um, yes, so yes. Yeah, I played, double blues. played for them for five years oh, and uh, and a lot of cricket. Uh, yep. uh, so um, uh, that uh, that held uh, solely sway and masterdom for a long period of time. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I entered on and wanted to be to do some surgery, etc., and got into the programs to do that. And uh, and I happened to be around in the right place at the right time when the the whole the father of this all of this wonderful stuff that we now do uh, was coming on the scene. He was a Frenchman, and I've talked about him endlessly, really, over the years. A man called Tessier in Paris, and I had some very enlightened um, teachers in England where I was at the time. And they allowed me to go and sit at his feet, and I became one of the fifteen who were the original ones who were were associated with him. And then I came back here and used that to set this up here. What, so, just to, what was it about him that was so special? Well, let's just broaden that a little bit because what he and and the other contemporary teachers of mine at the time and and. Um, uh, my brother and I have mused over a lot of this, but what was special about this time? People always think their own time is special, you know, and, you know, the young people don't know anything, but we know everything and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but there was something very special. There was something unique. All of these people had fought in World War II, mm-hmm. and that 
Because when you when you think about this, when the, the exposure to these people who had been in submarines, who had been dropped into um, into Yugoslavia behind the lines uh, to set up burns units when the, the the Nazis were withdrawing and burning people, and and Tessier himself had uh, was a Frenchman who had been in, uh, in uh, was a trauma surgeon, uh, dealing with smashed faces, etc and had been imprisoned by the Nazis, etc. So these were men of great substance. And I would imagine, too, only understanding a little bit about, you know, the intricacies of what you do, but incredibly resourceful. In every possible in way. Every, in very across correct. a lot of, you know, categories or disciplines. And, and so, you know, the world of CMF is about many different... And divisions coming together. It, that's very accurate. Uh, they they could not only do things, but they were resilient people as well. Um, and they had seen the worst of the worst and survived. Uh, so, and they were wonderful people to be around. Uh, so, as role models, and uh, I think that is something that is actually different now. Um, it's uh, the. Uh, uh, the input uh, is is quite different. So so the, these people um, uh, were inspirational in that way, uh, and also they got they lived in a world where they could get things done. Mm. Uh, they made decisions and they got things done. Sometimes they made mistakes, but they understood their mistakes, and they and they um, were very um, they adopted scientific principles. Uh, they. Uh, uh, they didn't just do uh, do things on a on a whim and a fancy. Uh, they were people who took big steps because they had people's lives in their hands. And uh, and as they made those steps, so they had to, to face community criticism. Of course, there's uh, uh, medicine and surgery in particular is always it's it's, it's peppered through with the, the community's disapproval. Somebody who wants to stop you doing it. So what were some of the criticisms? Well, Tessier himself um, uh, hit the scene because he was he was looking at various children with with a very bad condition, a uh, serious craniofacial condition called Aper syndrome, A-P-E-R-T. You're supposed to say Aper, you're supposed to say French. And, and, um, uh, and mostly they'd been locked up in madhouses. Wow. Uh, and he recognised that that a way of treating them by combining with the brain surgeon, two different disciplines that didn't often speak to each other, but if you combined with them, you could actually fix these kids' faces to a certain extent uh, uh, and make them... Uh, their brains develop better and make them look better, and so they needn't be in madhouses. And and of course, this caused big trouble. People wanted to get him arrested, and people wanted to to put him down in a big way. And at the same time as that was happening, would you believe it? There were people in madhouses in Australia with it as well. Mm. And these days, the Australian Craniofacial Unit uh, is um, has treated the biggest number of those in the world that's been published, and um, and we can now uh, give the opportunity to those children. Those children still have problems with their development. 
but we have a large number of them who can go to university, can drive motor cars, can have a job, and even some of them have got married. So, so from being from Vilif- being vilified to now gods, well, it's, it's extraordinary to be able to to be able to um, to achieve that in that time. And he started all that. Uh, of the 15 of us, I'm the last uh, one practising. I'm the youngest of those. And um, uh, uh, during that period of time, uh, we have in varying degrees been able to develop this holistic way of dealing with things, you know, dealing with every aspect, not just doing an operation mm-hmm. but looking at the eyes, looking at their psychosocial development, even looking at the teasing things. You know, these kids, oh, they're not acceptable in school. Or, you know, put them, oh, hang on, let's go to the school. Let's go and talk to the school. Let's just see if we can we can get a bit, bit more empathic and uh, uh, environment for, for uh, as these kids grow up and so on. So if you, if you could sort of uh, paint the picture, I guess, of the most common um, deformities that are presented or the the conditions that are presented what would what would sort of take up 75 to 80 percent of your work well we are dedicated to the very serious stuff but we do the whole range so yeah. so that's a bit distorted for us but if sure. you just look at what happens in the community mm. uh, there are two things it at different ends of the spectrum. The first one is cleft lip and palate, with which everybody's familiar, you know, because it's about one in six to 700 live births. Everybody knows someone. Once upon a time, people used to make jokes about the way they speak and and, and look. These days, you can't tell that they have it because, because of the way in which we can now manage it. Um, now, that's one end of the spectrum, but it is organisational. And there's always been struggle with hospitals and governments about wanting to make the resources available uh, because you need speech therapists and you need uh, ENT people because they can be deaf if they're not treated properly, because you need really sophisticated orthodontists and dentists, etc. And it all goes through the whole growth. You know, harmonious with growth, right back to that thing I was talking about. You know, what you see in the little baby, if, if the little baby can't, suck on mummy's tit, then it's mm. not going to get fed. So you have to have a way of doing it. In Never would have thought that, about that as a consequence. Oh, absolutely. And in villages in, in developing countries where there is no squeeze bottle and no, and no expert nurse and feeding person to teach you how to, some of those babies will die mm-hmm. because they, their life depends on the length of mummy's nipple. If it's a little bit short and a little bit inverted, and you can't, uh, and the baby can't suck, uh, then it doesn't get nourished as well. It's thin and marasmic. It's a mosquito bite. Gets infected. Blah blah blah. Doesn't does not thrive. You see, so so things like that are vital. Fluoride in the water and dentistry is terribly important because you can't get a very nice mouthful of teeth uh, at the end of it all with a when you when you're missing some of the bricks. You know, if you go back to the bricks, remember the bricks, <laughs> uh, they, they're, uh, if they're damaged and missing, you see. So that's one of the commonest of the of, – uh, and, and these days we've got uh, cliff lip and palate people. They can, be, they can be on the half-back flank from your, from your, age, yeah. from your footy team or they can, they can be in the opera company. They can be anything you want them to be and fabulous. But proper management, proper system. Now, at the other end of the spectrum – You've got the everyday occurrence uh, 
uh, of uh, your guys had just a bit too much to drink. It's a great night out, mate, and I just happened to be around and somebody king hit me. The fact that I was swearing at him and abusing his girlfriend didn't make any difference. But then, but then, you know, if you're not dead uh, with the king hit, you've got a smashed face. Once upon a time when we started, the smashed faces were very bad because of seatbelt, uh, no seatbelts, no airbags. And you, you were probably, you chaps are probably. Oh, and I remember mum had yeah. a Kingswood and the seatbelt basically didn't work. Uh, so. Well, and think about who died in the Kingswoods and the old Volkswagens. They were in the death seat. They were the seat next to the driver. And the old Volkswagen had a metal dashboard and your girlfriend, when you ran into a Stobie pole, had her head taken off and face smashed. And that was a very bad business. Now, that's less. But the most common one, would you believe it? Well, it's sport, mm-hmm. you know, but the, the other one is what happens after, uh, uh, after about 11 o'clock, uh, uh, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night at the pub? It's, mm-hmm. it's alcohol and drug-influenced uh, um, uh, violence. Versus now, I mean, and um, look, we're, we're, we're sort of jumping uh, through a, a whole sort of few phases of, of your career, but um, the Australian craniofacial, uh, craniofacial unit was was established, and Australia becomes world class. Yes, and yeah. people from all over the world are flown in, and these are not your uh, cheekbone incidents or your cleft palates. I'm assuming I mean, these are the really the really serious ones, ones. Yes, which which people can't and. and uh, uh, the craniofacial unit was set up by the Dunstan government back in um, in 1975 and um, formally set up as a formal thing. It's it's uh, you know he decided this was good for a South Australia. No one else in the country was doing it. Uh, and um, how does that come about? Uh, well, he made uh, decisions. He was a politician who made decisions. He saw that this was a good thing that South Australia had uh, uh, had a particular. Um, uh, expertise, and this leads you back to to think and talk a little bit about something about South Australia. At the moment, there's a lot of negative stuff going on. We're going through a very bad negative phase, but people who live in in South Australia need to really understand something about us. It is quite a unique place. It's it wasn't a convict colony. It was set up as as an ideal settlement based on the concepts of this man called Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who uh, it's hard to understand him a bit, but in one sense it was was for English Protestant gentlemen that didn't last very long, uh, that concept, but but it it, it was uh, set up as an ideological place. You can imagine... People in um, uh, in the uh, uh, first part of the um, of the nineteenth century, uh, looking outwards, they're wanting to they're going to the new world to other places, and somebody comes across this place. It's just recently been uh, mapped by Flinders and people like that, and and they discover this place and they decide they're going to set up a company and they're going to get money and they're going to get charters through uh, Parliament and they're going to come here. And they, they have the buffalo and this guy Hindmarsh and people. So they set up this colony. And, um, you know, it's a, it lots of things about how hard it was to, to thrive and survive. But that's another story. We can go through that. But, but 
When you think about what we are, we've got this ideal, absolutely wonderful Mediterranean-type climate. We can grow beautiful grapes at one stage of the game, lovely wine, but at one stage of the game we could grow enough wheat to feed Britain. Mm. We're wool. We, could, we were the wool centre of, of the world. We, were, we, we sent the, to the woollen mills in Bradford, et cetera, et cetera. So there was wealth, there was climate, and then because of the way and the people that were uh, the way we were set up and the people that were set up the the structure of the city the uh, colonel knight etc uh, uh, we attracted institutions now institutions are really vital things you know people can have ideas and all this, but unless they're institutionalized uh, then then you get nowhere so so the institutions were were really parliamentary democracy you know, you don't uh, start a civil war if you lose the election. <laughs> on, well, at least not until recently. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, we had universities very early on, high-quality, high-quality hospitals very early on. Children's Hospital, Royal Adelaide Hospital were institutions set up by really good people, intelligent people, uh, very early on. So, so, you've, uh, so you, had, you had health. You had climate, you had education, you had a democratic system, and the only thing that that we didn't have was was accessibility. We weren't as uh, as near. We were remote. Mm. We did have our own, as it were, inverted commas, gold rushes, but it was a copper rush, wasn't it? It was, uh, you know, the the mid north was, uh, uh, and they all ticked off and went to the to the gold fields eventually. But but so we had a, an eclectic uh, sort of um, uh, uh, import from around the world. We then started to build um, Broken Hill lines and North South uh, Telegraph lines. So we got Afghan camel drivers, and so we had all sorts of interesting people come in. We had, uh, we had uh, my own ancestors came, some from the Lebanon and some from uh, some from Ireland, uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, you know, a long, long time ago. Uh, uh, so, uh, so people came. As a result of this, we were able to do things, and we still are mm. able to do things uh, in a way uh, that's proportionate to the scale of the place. We're like a um, Renaissance city-state. We're about one point, about a million in the city around here, 1.5 the state, with all these institutions, so you can do things. Mm. Now, we can do this craniofacial thing better than anybody mm. because of the scale of the place. The only thing against it these days, of course, is the uh, is the outrageous bureaucracy that uh, kills everything. But uh, that's but, another podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well but is uh, is that a problem that has um, I guess brought about challenges for the unit? Oh, absolutely, all the time. I mean, because the the productive models are always being meddled with by people who don't understand why they were set up. Mm. Um, the thought bubble meddling. Um, when you set up something that's absolutely world class, and then somebody who's got no idea about it at all, but goes somewhere else and or comes from somewhere else with an idea of what they do, and then wants to change it to what they do, you know, your your new girlfriend uh, wants you to uh, to set the table just like she's always set the table, even though you know that it's the wrong way to do it. 
So, so you know, the um, uh, there's uh, there's all of that sort of influence around the place. So, uh, uh, so this is you know that challenge, but that challenge is always there. Uh, the um, you know this could lead on to uh, to uh, to views about the new Royal Adelaide and. Uh, where the healthcare is going and all the rest, and uh, whether you want to talk about that or not is another well, question. Well, I'm keen to get to it, but I'm also, um, I love very detailed descriptions of the, at the coalface stuff. So I also, I'm, I'm just fascinated with um, whether there are some cases which just stand out in your mind and that the problems that you had to solve, um, the outcomes from those surgeries and and whether or not you build relationships with your patients seeing as this journey does evolve over many many years well we can start the last one first of course you do i mean one of the great pleasures of my my life now which is towards the end of my um, uh, my practicing career is that uh, is that i'm now meeting the children and sometimes grandchildren right. of of the patients that i've treated and and to uh, to meet some of them, uh, uh, I mean, you, you've had a, you've known them for almost as long as their parents. And uh, but isn't it a bit counterintuitive that you're you're literally peeling back their face, and there's that pragmatism that comes with surgery. Um, I always see surgeons as needing to divorce themselves from the emotion a little bit. Is it is that ever? It, an issue? Well, it's it's not. Once you're doing it, it's it's quite difficult, really, because you're trained to do this stuff. You know, you train yourself, and uh, uh, there are uh, you know, there's a, there's there's a somewhat difficult dilemma in surgical training at the moment, where where the surgical educators are trying to um, make life easy for the trainees. They mustn't work too long, and they mustn't work too hard, and they they're wanting to make it like sort of a, an, an industrial contract. Now, okay, that's lovely for certain things, you know, because of lifestyle and so on. But there are certain things you have to train yourself for. If you seriously want to play uh, uh, four quarters of hard football for the Crows, then you have to do that pre-season training, whether you like it or not. And uh, if you don't do that, then there are certain circumstances in the grand final or mm. everywhere else when everyone else is out on their feet and you need to uh, and you need to stand up. Uh, uh, then it's that training that does it. Now it's the same in surgery. Mm. There's no doubt about that. It's not every day, but there. Are, if you're not trained for the moment when you think I can't do this, I can't go on and do this. This is a terrible moment. You think, no, hang on, I can, I must, and I will. And uh, so uh, are you concerned that perhaps um, some that these trainers aren't putting in the um, the pre-season, I guess, into some of these up-and-coming seasons. Well, I think the concepts now are getting a little bit muddled and there are some of us who do know about these things that are, that are it's not just me, that are just a little bit anxious that it goes the other way because, um, because delivering healthcare in surgery has a, uh, has a um, more than intellectual component to it it does actually have a somewhat physical component as well, and that's that has got to be with a certain amount of emotional and physical resilience. And so I think the the challenges that used they're not so much these days because we um, uh, we do these this surgical stuff now on these little kids and, and older people as well uh, in 
a, a much slicker and easier way. I mean, we're much more skilled at it. We do it all the time. Uh, but still in all, things can go wrong. And, uh, and What's an example of that? What's an extreme example of... Oh, uncontrolled bleeding is one of the And that things. can lead to death. Yes. We've so never, you've got the life of the yeah, patient. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that's something, uh, thank goodness, that, uh, that is as rare as hen's teeth with us. Um, uh, and uh, but in the early days of doing this, both with all with every one of my colleagues around the world, this was new, newly charted ground. Mm. And when we would, we formed an international society, and we then had some facilitators come and talk to us about that. Uh, we got them in because why did we form this society? And we, you know, these are serious guys from around the world, and and we. Uh, we thought about this a bit and we, we, we formed it because we're all scared. Mm. We wanted to know whether there, was, whether there was anything that we didn't know. You know, the worst thing is, is to not know what you don't know. That, that's, that's when things are dangerous. And we wanted to check with each other. And, and so that was the basis of us forming a, a group of people that came from all, every continent, really. So if it took you back to my 15-stage question just before, it would tick that the, there's that emotional connection and relationship that, that grows. Patience, yeah. um, what, what have been a couple of cases, you know, physiologically and with the condition that just made it one that stands out in your mind? Well, I mean, one of the, case, one of the very early cases we did was, um, you know, there was... Um, uh, there was still in, in Adelaide, and uh, it's only after you know, a short time after Tessier had started this stuff, we were doing a very serious case from another state, and the, where nobody else was doing any of this stuff, and and the kid wasn't doing so well. These operations in those days used to take us 12, 13, 14 hours, and we can do them now in the morning, but uh, but uh, in very an- anxious business, and the kid wasn't doing so well, and and I can remember feeling emotionally as I was doing this that the other people in the room were withdrawing. You could see that they were thinking, well, something's going to go wrong here and I don't know that I want to be associated with how this. Do you se- how do you sense that? Or easily. Is, it body, is it just body, no one's yeah, talking? Body language, yeah, the body language, yes, body language. You know, the sort of, and, and when you're around an operating table, you can see them, they can't step away too far because they're wanting to be <laughs> going backwards. But you can feel the distance growing. <laughs> yes, you can growing. feel the distance growing, yes. And, uh, and there, was, um, there was, and during this, this particular case, and this young man's still alive and well, and uh, I only saw him last week in another state. Uh, and he's a middle-aged man now. But, um, but there was a very wonderful cardiologist at the Women's and Children's Hospital. I won't give out people's names, with it, but he was a man who was a great supporter and, and who I admired very much. And he, he, uh, this kid's heart wasn't doing so well and um, he'd lost a bit of blood, et cetera, and operation was going on and on. Uh, and he, um, he just appeared by my left elbow and he said, that's all right, I'll sort this out. That's okay. Just you know, just get on, and it'll be all right. And uh, uh, and um, and that's that's a moment that's stuck in my uh, in my head, of course. And uh, uh, I was just going to say on that, can you can you talk us through the dynamic of being in surgery, particularly in those early years? You're pioneering, really. Um, how? What's the dynamic of the team? How are you uh, keeping everyone focused? As you said, you mentioned that sometimes people withdraw. How do you how do you pull your team together? Uh, 
Well, the, you've got to have willing members to start with, and we were blessed with the most wonderful people um, who who wanted to start it. I mean, they were they, we had the expertise here. What we just didn't have was the approval to do it, and we didn't have the. Um, uh, uh, the, the caseload, really, but but when you consider no one in Australia, Southeast Asia, or anything else, anywhere else was doing it. So Dunstan was in, in, instrumental in that. He was absolutely marvellous premier, and he he was able to facilitate that for us. You see, so uh, uh, so you got this team together, and then and then basically it was intellectual agreement. You know, and then you have to understand what it is you're doing. You have to understand why you're fixing something. Make the diagnosis. You know, what is it in this Rolls Royce that's going wrong? Uh, and then you have to, and then you have to have a plan. You have to have protocols and a plan. So it took ages to sort these things out. Mm. We used to, um, if we were operating on a Tuesday in the early days, we would spend almost all of Saturday. Um, planning it. We would actually get the theatre staff in and we'd uh, get all of the trolleys out and uh, and we'd plan how the operating room was set up. Like Role-playing. Yeah, 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 yeah role-playing and rehearsals and who's going to stand where. You and couldn't have a nip of whiskey as you're doing this on a no, Saturday, could you? None no. of that, none of that, none of that. And it took a long time. And in those days we didn't have CAT scans either. You know, now every, every GP orders a CAT scan for something, you fall over in the street to get a CAT, a CAT scan. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I'd just gone off to get the CAT scans as he, as he comes off at three-quarter time. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, so um, the um, in those days it was plain X-rays and then we had to have a, you know, very hotshot uh, radiologist who would be there for half the morning telling us what, trying to show us what we could see, which was just a great, uh, uh, great fog mostly. <laughs> Um, but anyway, it gave us some information. These days, we know a lot more. These days, we can, as you can see across mm. the desk here, we have the three-dimensional skull models of actual people, mm. and we can uh, uh, look at those and plan the surgery on that. And I and I did read somewhere that this is this is a great case study for three D imaging and and mapping someone's skull. I mean, were you at the forefront? of that being used within yes, craniofacial? Yes, yeah, almost absolutely yeah. because that came about by by a man who is actually here in town at the moment. He's a, a very, very valued colleague of mine from, uh, from Milwaukee who came here as a locum to work when the senior neurosurgeon went away to Oxford. We were writing a book together and he wanted to go to Oxford to be on his own while he was writing. And this man who was married in Australian and they're just back here for a couple of months visiting now because they've retired, and he came over to work with us here and um, many, many years ago and he, uh, uh, he was uh, a military man military surgeon who'd worked in Vietnam, et cetera, and he had a little model of a vertebra, um, a little picture of a model, and he said, I wonder if this is anything that uh, that uh, would be of interest because uh, the people at General Electric had given it to him and, he, and so instantly he said, my God, if we could do that for the skull, wouldn't that first days of CAT scans, you mm. see? And, uh, uh, and uh, so he rang up. Uh, uh, the people in General Electric, and they they said, "There's a man who has developed the algorithm, the mathematical algorithm for this, and he is in Philadelphia." And, and what year are we talking? Roughly? Oh, um, early eighties. Yep. Um, the um, uh, uh, 
there's a uh, this this man. He's called. I won't give names out, but uh, anyway. So we rang this man up, and this man was a great big bearded Hungarian Jewish chap, and uh, and he said in his wonderful accent, he he said. Uh, you foolish people," he said. Uh, he said, "Why are you asking me?" He said. Uh, said my teacher did this algorithm. He lives. He's in your university. He's two hundred meters from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, right. and that was true. And it happened to be the father of one of my classmates at uh, at university, uh, who who is uh, still practicing here. So he, this man, died. But he was a a, a genius mathematician, and he wrote the algorithms. And we started. Making Making these models, and we were making these before anybody. Uh, but um, uh, you will understand that uh, in a country the size of Australia, with the wealth that Australia hasn't, we cannot sustain um, uh, the uh, amount of uh, um, seed money that's necessary. And of course, big companies like General Electric and um, and Siemens and these people got this and took it, and mm. of course. Uh, but we were right at the very beginning of, of doing this sort of thing in surgery. In terms of technology, what's next in the field? Uh, not much, I don't think, really. Um, we're, we've moved away a little bit from the genetics and the shape, size and consistency of things. Um, um, people are flirting with getting... Uh, um, uh, Various sort of technical arms length stuff, robots, etc. But but that, that's uh, that's uh, a way away mm. for this sort of thing. The best robot you've got's a human being with a brain and a class uh, class one eyeball. You know, uh, you're probably best better off with that. It's a good uh, computer between the ears. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've heard you on on a previous uh, interview talk about the moment that uh, a mother hears. The oohs oh, and ahs no. in oh, a room. Yeah, they're very significant. Yeah, and, and, and it's a really powerful story. And I, I was wondering how much of this can be detected before birth, if any. Yeah, it, well, the 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 um, the twenty uh, week ultrasound can detect a lot of these things, and we've just written something about one of the more simple ones of these conditions, where people have long, uh, boat shaped heads, and if you don't pick this up, mother can have a terrible time squeezing this baby out and hurt herself and hurt the baby, etc. Now we've just put that into the press recently. It's been very hard to get that acknowledged, but that that's um, that's a very common phenomenon. Mm. So, so the advent of the uh, of the ultrasound um, and the more sophisticated ultrasounds. Some of them are not all that easy to read, but there are more sophisticated ones that uh, that can uh, can pick up stuff. And so, uh, algorithms are being developed for when you suspect something then maybe go on, et cetera. But then, of course, there is the business of termination yeah. of pregnancy, which comes into this. Uh, Horrible. And, and it has to be at, uh, at a particular time and those difficult dilemmas that face people, et cetera. As we begin to wind up, uh, my I'm interested in, throughout your career, how you personally um, continue to learn, who you learn from, how you stayed sharp, and and I guess at the at the peak of your field. 
oh, goodness gracious me, that's a lot. Uh, uh, <laughs> go to the gym and go running, uh, read, read, read lots. Still? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, so where would you, what would you open? I mean, I, we noticed there's there's huge files on your desk, so there's work reading. Yep. Um, what about reading beyond just the cases that you've got going on at the moment? Yes, I like to read lots of stuff. I, uh, I read, um, I particularly like history and philosophy, so I, I read lots of um, uh, of basic philosophy. I did a bit of philosophy at university, not very successfully, but uh, but enough to keep my interest going, and so I read a lot of that. Uh, I'm particularly reading, at the moment I'm reading uh, uh, about uh, history between um, of Europe between 500 and 1,000. That is the, the end, the sort of dark ages, um, uh, because that's emerging as some... Uh, People doing lots of digs, etc. Now, and, and a lot of the 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 historical stuff that was, as it were, buried, is now emerging uh, about that as to where we've come from and how our civilizations developed. You would have had your work cut out for you in the dark ages in terms of um, smashed faces and uh, yeah, and but bashed no, up people. No one lived for very long in those days no. either. So you know, you know, I think I've read somewhere recently that your normal Roman soldier didn't live much past twenty two or twenty three. So, uh, you know, you, you had to squeeze a bit of life in between uh, the few years you had. Um, so in, into we've talked about into the future. I guess we've, we've talked about learning and reading. Are there any parts of practising that still give you that spark, that energy, that joy? Oh, I think seeing the outcomes is uh, what, what I, uh, I can uh, personally, I'm, Pretty comfortable with the surgery that, that I personally do. Uh, there are challenges at the top end of the scale, always, always. Um, uh, I've been uh, thrilled by the number of people that I've been able to train. For example, in Great Britain, there are four uh, designated units in Great Britain, and three of those are staffed by uh, people who've been trained in Adelaide. So uh, and we've we've set up units in um, in Bangkok. We've set up uh, we've helped the people in the other unit in in France. We've helped people in uh, Southeast Asia, in the Gulf, um, units in Singapore, Surabaya, Shanghai, up on the wall up there. So we've helped all of those people set up their units around the place, and and that's very thrilling to see that uh, those come to fruition and people being looked after. Um, uh, and uh, uh, but I, I still uh, I still like getting a nice result. Mm. I mean, getting a really good result at the end of the day and seeing see the little kids. We had a couple here this morning. Uh, little kid who had an operation last Tuesday. Then comes in here, so, so maybe just over a week, uh, um, and uh, walking in, you know, uh, had his head opened, had it reshaped and all that sort of thing and able to come in here with mum going back on the plane to Sydney. And um, uh, and that that's, that's really good, you know. Mm. You think well, we're on the right track there. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's working. Um, Professor David, thank you so much for a history lesson in giving us the evolution of the craniofacial uh, unit um, for opening up, I guess, the world of, of someone who does, you know, incredibly significant things in a world of talk and technology. You, you use your hands to make a huge difference. Uh, 
Um, and uh, and we really appreciate giving up your time in a, in a very hectic schedule to talk to Rooster Radio. So appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our chat with Professor David David. We're certainly going to have to get him back for a part two. Remember to check out roosterradio.biz to listen to more episodes and sign up to our mailing list. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. And finally, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Roosterradio.